This is episode 220 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like Shakespeare, our show is supported by our patrons. Unlock bonus episodes and exclusive history content when you sign up to support our show at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. The average healthy adult was advised to sleep for between seven and eight hours a night. But we have lots of evidence that that sleep took place in two separate cycles. And this is often referred to as biphasic sleep or segmented sleep. Um, And that involved people taking what they referred to as a first sleep um, and a second sleep. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Shakespeare mentions sleep in his plays over 380 times and the word bed over 540 times. His works mention specific kinds of beds from his lifetime, like truckle beds, as well as the famous Great Bed of Ware. But when it comes to the bard himself, it got me wondering, what did he sleep on? Here this week to help us explore beds in Tudor England, as well as pajamas, bedtime rituals, and the materials used to make bedsheets is our guest and author of Sleep in Early Modern England, Professor Sasha Handley. Sasha Handley is a historian of early modern society and culture, largely focused on the British Isles. Sasha published the monogram Sleep in Early Modern England in 2016, and her current research includes Sleeping Well in the Early Modern World, an environmental approach to the history of sleep care, funded by a Wellcome Trust Investigator Award and a Wellcome Trust Investigator Research Enrichment Award. The project will be the first to investigate the environmental context of early modern sleep practices in the British Isles and early America. Material methodologies like archaeology and microscopy are key to the project's success. Saucer's work has been supported by the AHRC, British Academy, Wellcome Trust, and the ESRC. Her international research fellowships include the Folger Shakespeare Library, the Lewis Walpole Library, the Moore Institute, the Victoria and Albert Museum, McGill University, and the Institute of Historical Research. See a more comprehensive list of Sasha's research, as well as direct links to her work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Sasha. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cassidy. Thanks for having me. I think for many of us, we assume that people in the Tudor era would have slept in a bed, but that might be taking modern sleeping arrangements for granted. Sasha, how common was it for people to sleep in an actual bed during Shakespeare's lifetime? Yeah, well, the the answer varies widely according to social status, um, but it was becoming increasingly common in the 16th and 17th centuries um, for people to sleep on some kind of wooden bed frame, however basic that might have been. There are big distinctions in terms of a bed frame's height. So the higher, the better, the more elevated your status and the further away you were from the cold, damp floor. Other ways of distinguishing your bed were having nice decorative features, ornate carvings, that kind of thing. But the most important way in which you would distinguish your bed according to status was uh, the textiles that you covered it in. So we've got a, a huge range here from elite beds with silk velvet curtains topped with uh, extravagant finials, 
beds with multiple mattresses stuffed with very expensive materials um, through to uh, much more simple low wooden beds, something like a truckle bed, for example, which was movable, portable around the house and could be hidden during the daytime. And that would potentially be topped with a simple mattress stuffed with a, a mixture of cheap materials like straw or flock, something like that. So fairly common to sleep in an actual bed, but beds differed really widely in terms of what they looked like and how fancy they were. I know Shakespeare uses the phrase truckle bed in Romeo and Juliet. Mercutio includes it as part of a larger sort of, I don't know, like a nice way to say that he's telling a dirty joke, but he he includes it in that. And I didn't know yeah. what I, that truckle bed meant that it's this specific kind of bed that's portable. So that's... Yeah, it's often very low to the ground, often set on wheels, and it could be placed beneath a higher status bed, um, and so hidden away. But also truckle is a verb, and to truckle means to to bow down to somebody of a more elevated status. So the clue is in the in the name itself. At Shakespeare's birthplace in Stratford-upon-Avon, there are beds in place inside the house set up the way it would have been for Shakespeare's lifetime. The first time I went there, I was surprised to discover that not all the beds had canopies on them. Personally, I had just assumed from all the woodcuts of pregnant women laying in bed or being visited by a midwife that canopy beds were the norm for keeping off bird mess or what have you that may have been up in the rafters of of a general home. However, several of the beds in Shakespeare's home look just like the beds we have today, albeit significantly smaller. They look very much like twin or double beds that we have today with thinner mattresses. Sasha, what did a typical bed in a house like Shakespeare's look like? And were they made to accommodate a single person or did people sleep multiple people to a bed? So for a middling sort craftsman like Shakespeare's father, John Shakespeare, a typical bed for the master and mistress of that household would have been something like a a fairly simple wooden tester bed. So something that looks like a four-poster bed, which you could have had a a canopy on or not, depending on whether you could afford to do that. But they probably wouldn't have had elaborate or expensive carvings on them, just a plain wooden bed frame. Though fairly simple, it would still have cost around a quarter of um, John Shakespeare's annual wages, which is roughly £10, estimating that his wage was about £40 per year. So it's still a very substantial investment And actually, in terms of um, typical household contents, a person's bed generally comprised about one third of their entire household possessions in terms of value. It's also worth noting, I think, that specialised sleeping spaces or what we now call bedrooms were starting to spread gradually in these years. Again, it was probably only the master and his wife that might benefit from a separate sleeping chamber above the main parlour. And that, of course, might be a reason that you don't necessarily need a canopy, because one of the reasons that you have it is to create a feeling of uh, privacy and enclosure if a bed is placed in a more multifunctional space within the household. Other members of the household, though, the same household, children and servants, for example, would usually have had much uh, simpler beds, which they would often share with people of the same sex and of similar status or age. And they would probably have slept in a more multifunctional part of the house rather than in a separate space. So even even within the same home, you have lots of uh, different examples of bed types. And it depends on your status within the household, what your bed might have looked like and where it was placed. 
Now, you mentioned earlier that mattresses were stuffed with straw and various material, but tell us about the different types of mattresses. Were, um, obviously, I don't think coil mattresses were created at this point in history. So what were they stuffed with inside and were they comfortable to sleep on? Yeah, again, there's, uh, there's a big variation here. So for those that could afford it, you could have some really expensive animal feathers as mattress stuffings. Something like duck, goose, fe- um, duck and goose feathers. I've even found examples of otters' feathers being used um, in mattresses, and they were, of course, warm and very soft. And that type of mattress would typically have been the one directly below the sleeper's body. If you've got money, though, you don't just have one mattress; you have several, and they are stacked up on top of each other. So a typical arrangement would be to have a couple of lower mattresses that sat on top of a a corded rope system at the base of the bed. And your lower mattresses would be filled with something much stiffer and more sturdy like horse hair. And then the ones that were closer to your body would be filled with those expensive animal feathers to generate uh, softness and and comfort. Although there was uh, a lively debate in the period about the potential pitfalls of that kind of mattress that it might generate unwelcome amorous thoughts that were not appropriate for bedtime or that it might overheat the body and therefore disturb the humours. So it wasn't necessarily prized by everybody. Further down the social scale, more modest mattress fillings included straw, which I've already mentioned, and that's particularly common for agricultural workers who would be sleeping in outhouses not necessarily in the main residence. We also find lots of cheap flocks, so tufts of wool or cotton fibre, and even um, torn up pieces of paper being mixed in with those materials. What I found particularly interesting lately are the kinds of plants and herbs that could be used to keep these fillings clean and free from damp as well. So we also have uh, plants like chaff and beech leaves um, being used to stuff mattresses with because they were thought to be absorbent and also cooling for the body, so particularly good for the summer months. So yeah, levels of comfort, I suspect, uh, differed widely. That's partly because of the mattress stuffings, but also it would depend on what they were sitting on. So if you've got a nice corded rope base at the bottom of your bedstead, you're likely to be having a much nicer time than somebody who's sleeping on a flat pallet bed or even just on a hard floor. Were other kinds of herbs put inside the mattresses to help keep them clean specifically, like, I don't know, peppermint or rosemary or something like that, or just? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Rosemary certainly was. And also herbs to keep things smelling sweet, which again was linked to ideas of cleanliness at the time. So things like lavender and uh, dried hops are re- really common uh, fillings for both mattresses and pillows and bolsters. Would people like Shakespeare have used a pillow or a pillowcase or accessories like a bedspread or sheets to sleep on? Yes. I mean, I think undoubtedly bed sheets and coverlets would have been a feature of Shakespeare's sleeping arrangements, most likely made of linen, which could be made from hemp or flax plants, um, either made at home or purchased um, as is. Coverlets were often embroidered with meaningful designs that might encourage spiritual thoughts or that might remind a married couple of the need to procreate in that particular place. As for pillows and bolsters, again, these were fairly common in Tudor times. 
Though light mattresses, they varied widely in quality and value. There is nevertheless some evidence to suggest that a good wooden log (laughs) sufficed as a head support for uh, sturdier people who regarded pillows and bolsters as too luxurious. But medical advice at the time stressed the need to sleep with the head raised to create a gentle slope down towards the stomach. And that was to ensure that digestion wasn't interrupted during the night. So the need to raise the head slightly is a really staple part of a sleep regimen, sleep advice at this time. So yes, I think it highly likely that pillows and or bolsters um, were used by Shakespeare. So what were the bed linens? You mentioned hemp, but was was cotton or wool used to make bed linens? Bed sheets were almost always made of linen. And I mean the sheet that sat directly on top of the sleeper's body. Other materials would have been piled on top of that, but bed sheets were almost always made of linen. Um, They could be homemade, and it was a familiar part of a woman's domestic education to know how to sew, to cultivate, and to process hemp and flax plants into linen thread, which could then be woven into bed sheets for the household. Now, even though clothing began to be made of cotton or mixed fibres in this period, it, it really wasn't until the 19th century that cotton began to overtake linen as the preferred material for bed sheets. And there were good reasons for that. Linen was prized because it was very durable and it was much better able to withstand regular laundering than other fibres. It's also a very breathable textile that keeps the body cool and prevents overheating. And as I've said, that was really important in Tudor sleep regimens that recommended cool sleeping environments in order to procure healthy sleep. The sheets themselves were often embroidered with the owner's initials in the corners of the sheets. That's partly to show ownership, but also to make sure the right sheets went back to the right beds after they were cleaned. Bed sheets are also common objects to be passed down through generations of a Tudor family, usually through the female line, showing that they were often highly prized legacy objects within a family that helped to craft a family's reputation for cleanliness and domesticity. One exception perhaps to that, of course, um, are the bedsheets that also doubled up as winding sheets and in which people chose to be buried. And that is, I think, where we get our association between white sheets and ghosts. So they're actually bedsheets of the time that were used to wrap the body that have been depicted um, in some of those uh, ghostly narratives. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I know I've seen a lot of portraits and sketches and woodcuts from the 16th and 17th century where it looks like bedsheets are solid white. They'll be hanging on these lines or there's one portrait I I really like called the bleaching fields where there's giant sheets laid out over the grass and and all of them are just completely white. So I was wondering, are bedsheets always white or would they have had multiple colors or patterns like we think of sheets today? The more expensive linens certainly were white. That's a colour that's very strongly associated at this time with cleanliness, but also with uh, spiritual purity. But in reality, there was a wide spectrum of colours from fairly deep browns through to creams and off-whites. And that's partly due to uh, different bleaching processes, but also to different species of flax and hemp plants that produce different colour fibres. So you have regional variation in terms of the crops that were uh, cultivated to produce these sheets in the first place. 
but the examples that survive, and there aren't that many in terms of sort of ordinary bed sheets, they're on a spectrum from brown to bright white, I would say. So nobody would have had like elaborately embroidered sheets the way that they had embroidered coverlets or things like that. All of the all of the bed linens were were just flat and a, some kind of solid color on this spectrum. A solid color. Some of them certainly did have decorative features, but because they are a more functional part of the bed textiles, they were never as elaborately embroidered or decorated as the the coverlets or, or the valances that went right on the top of the bed. But you do see decorative edging. You do see centre panels of almost kind of lacework uh, being introduced into the sheet. And that looked nice, but it also had a functional purpose because when the centre parts of the sheet were starting to wear out, you could cut down that central panel and turn the sheet outwards, turn turn it to the other side, um, stitch it back together and extend the life of the bed sheet. So, yeah, they were decorated, but just not quite as uh, extravagantly as the bed covers that were much more visible. Earlier, you mentioned the idea of a Tudor sleep regimen, uh, suggesting that a cool environment was important. And I want to ask you about that Tudor sleep regimen and specifically sleeping patterns at night. Would people like Shakespeare have typically gone to bed in the evening and slept for straight hours straight? They would typically have gone to bed in the evening for sure. And bedtimes typically range between 9 and 10 p.m. in the evening. It's probably typical for a kind of middling sort of household like Shakespeare's. You could afford a little bit of candlelight to extend their waking hours after sunset. As for sleep timings, the average healthy adult was advised to sleep for between seven and eight hours a night. But we have lots of evidence that that sleep took place in two separate cycles. And this is often referred to as biphasic sleep or segmented sleep. And that involved people taking what they referred to as a first sleep um, and a second sleep, perhaps of sort of three, three and a half hours duration each. And those two cycles were separated in the middle by an hour of waking in which one might read a book, have sex with a partner, finish your household chores. I've even found examples of people getting up to walk the dog or to brew beer in the early hours of the morning. But recommended sleeping hours varied across a person's life cycle. There are special rules for pregnant women, for babies, and also for older people who are thought to benefit from shorter but more regular bursts of sleep. Now, we know that nightcaps, like the hat worn by characters like Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, for example, were decidedly an 18th century invention and after Shakespeare's lifetime. But I do want to ask about the night clothes and what they would have been like for Shakespeare. I mean, did Shakespeare wear pajamas? (laughs) Yeah, the the question of night clothes is is a bit of a mystery and the evidence is really sketchy. It's partly because there's no equivalent term in common usage in, in Tudor times. Our best guess is is that some people slept in simple um, cotton or linen shifts um, or in their daytime shirts, many of which you could uh, detach the collar and cuffs from. So you you wouldn't kind of mess those bits up at nighttime when you're moving around. There's some evidence to suggest that people slept naked as well. And perhaps that was especially true um, in the summer months to avoid overheating. 
One item of clothing, though, that was widely recommended during sleep was, in fact, a nightcap. Oh, <laughs> um, no. <laughs> now, not, not of the, the elaborate decorative kind that survive from this period that have, you know, very ornate embroidery patterns on them, but something much simpler that surrounded the head and tied under the chin to keep it in place. Now, so not, not, not the, not the cone-shaped cap with, like, the corner that hangs over but more like no, a wrap no, something like a that would sit very flat to the head that you would have a little tie you could tie a ribbon underneath to to keep it as is during the night not many of them have survived there's one in the in the victorian albert museum but they were i think very typical and we have lots of household inventories and account books that have items listed for the making and cleaning of these nightcaps So I think they were uh, regularly used. And again, it takes us back to Tudor medical advice, which really stressed the need to keep the the brain temperature stable during the night to avoid unbalancing the humours. So I think people very commonly slept with nightcaps, though perhaps not quite of the, the same kind that Ebenezer Scrooge is associated with. Well, I'm I'm delighted to know that there there was like an ancestor from Shakespeare's lifetime, or like a an iteration of the nightcap that came before this. I'd like I'd like to think that that was a fashion evolution moment there from <laughs> from Shakespeare to Scrooge. But now I know that the toothbrush was technically invented in Shakespeare's lifetime, but it was invented by a man in prison, which we cover in another episode that I'll link to in the show notes for today. But the act of brushing your teeth with a toothbrush, the way we think of one getting ready for bed today, would not catch on as a popular part of social behavior until well after Shakespeare's lifetime. Sasha, while we think of brushing your teeth as a standard step for going to bed, since we know Shakespeare didn't have a toothbrush, what did he do? Would it? What would it look like for Shakespeare to get ready for bed? Were there evening pre-sleeping rituals similar to brushing one's teeth that people would have observed at night before they went to sleep? Uh, yeah, yes, certainly. One of the most important nighttime rituals in this period was to secure the house from danger. And in immediate physical danger, it was theft or fire during the night. So the, the boundaries of the house had to be marshaled and secured uh, from the streets. And candles and open fires had to be carefully extinguished. And that would be somebody's job to do those things before bedtime. Once that was done, a third and more important danger had to be confronted. And that was the possibility of sudden death during sleep, potentially as uh, the result of the devil's attack, whose power peaked at nighttime when vulnerable sleepers were unable to detect danger around them. So the the Tudors had an acute sense of vulnerability, both physical and spiritual, at night. Um, And they sought to protect themselves from danger by reciting bedtime prayer and engaging in various kind of acts of spiritual contemplation at the bedtime, at bedtime, in which they begged for God's protection whilst they slept until morning. And I can give you one example here of a, a typical bedtime prayer that would have been uh, really common at this time. And it goes something like this. Oh, may my guardian, while I sleep, close to my bed, his vigils keep, his love angelical instill, stop all the avenues of ill. And that's a really short lyrical prayer. It's called a white paternoster. And it would have been sung by children um, as they went to bed. 
and you know carried on uh, into later life so evening and morning prayers bookended the hours of sleep at each end the former to beg for protection and the latter to give thanks for preservation and the book of common prayer which would have been you know the most the most common religious book in a Tudor household um, contained set forms of set forms of bedtime prayer that could be used and people also came up with their own creative form of words as well but it's a really important pre-bedtime ritual so what about waking up again in the morning? You mentioned that they would have morning prayers to give thanks mm-hmm. for having been preserved through the night, but would Shakespeare have like made his bed in the morning or what was the getting up from sleep rituals for Shakespeare's lifetime? Before you left your bed, you would have said morning prayer and those prayers compared to the rising of the sun to the Christian resurrection. Once those prayers were done, uh, you would get dressed. You might have a servant to assist you with that depending on your status. And then you would call your family to their morning communal devotions. Breakfast would then be taken before setting off for work. I mean, this is a very idealised morning routine. And of course, one that may not have been possible for everybody. If you had, for example, to attend to livestock, you'd be up very, very early to do your your dairying, uh, your milking early in the morning and you might then change the order in which you do some of these things it's probably also worth noting that a servant probably didn't have time to pray since they were the people that had to rise earliest to prepare the house for everyone by lighting fires opening windows and curtains and preparing foodstuffs so again it's one of those situations where uh, your social status dictates the amount of leisure time that you have to devote to these uh, activities in the morning. If you would like to learn more about how the Tudors slept, be sure to check out Sasha Handley's book, Sleep in Early Modern England, to explore all of these things that we've been discussing today, as well as more on the history of sleep in 16th and 17th century England. Sasha, this has just been a delightful time visiting the world of sleep for Shakespeare's lifetime and exploring Everything from how Shakespeare slept in a bed to what kind of pajamas he had on. But I know that listeners are so intrigued right now and just like me would love to explore this topic further. So in addition to your excellent book, which I just strongly recommend as your first stopping point, what are some books and resources you can recommend from your research into this topic that people should explore when they want to learn more about sleep in Shakespeare's lifetime? Yeah, well, a great place to start um, is the website Shakespeare in 100 Objects. That has some excellent beds, uh, warming pans, um, bed staves, um, embroidered textiles, etc. It would really give you a feeling of what sleeping chambers would have looked like in the period. I would also recommend um, having a look at the Great Bed of Ware, that's W-A-R-E, on the Victoria and Albert Museum's website. It's one of the few Elizabethan bedsteads that has survived and it's incredibly large um, but very ornately decorated that one is actually um, mentioned in Shakespeare's plays as well didn't it sleep up to like nine people or something insane yeah potentially yeah. more depending on which report oh my goodness okay <laughs> but it is it is vast I've it's massive it, it's <laughs> it is huge there's also a great book by uh historians Tara Hamling and Catherine Richardson called A Day at Home in Early Modern England, uh, Material Culture and Domestic Life. Um, And actually a lot of their sources are drawn from 16th and 17th century Warwickshire. So again, you might get a feel for Shakespeare's neighbours, if not for his specific household. 
which will get us so close to Shakespeare's life. Those are excellent resources. We'll link to these as well as Sasha's book in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there at the end of the episode to find those. Now, Sasha, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. The book that I feel most emotionally connected to is my childhood favourite, and that is Jill Tomlinson's The Owl Who Was Afraid of the Dark. The owl is called Plop. He's very cute. Um, It's a very reassuring and comforting book for me, and actually one that perhaps started me thinking about the the perils of the nighttime at quite an early age. So I'd probably take that. That's an excellent choice. I've No one has recommended that, and I'm so glad you did, because not only are owls one of my son's favorite books, but he loves particularly owls and bedtime stories. So I will be checking that one out to read it yeah, uh, it's read it to him. Thank you for suggesting that. What's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Uh, yeah, at the moment, I'm, I'm working on a new research project called Sleeping Well in the Early Modern World, which is funded by the Wellcome Trust. It's a project that aims to reconstruct the ways that Tudor people and uh, Stuart communities in Britain, Ireland and England's emerging American colonies um, engage with their physical surroundings to try to sleep well and safeguard their health. So we're uncovering lots of really fascinating information about how people made soporific tonics, how they overcame sleep loss, what they stuffed into their mattresses, including things like rabbit and squirrel fur, and the particular importance of women as agents of uh, sleep care practices for the household We only just started last October, but we have a project website where you can find out more information and read some of our early blog posts. Oh, we would love to do that. Tell us the the URL for that, and I'll make sure we link directly to it from the show notes. Okay, will do. Thank you so much, Sasha Handley, for being here and walking us through the history of sleep in Shakespeare's lifetime. I really appreciate this conversation and you taking the time to be here to share it with us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Cassidy. Be sure to leave us a comment and a rating on your favorite podcast platform to let other listeners know where they can learn something new about Shakespeare. That's a great place also to leave your comments about what you enjoyed about the show or how you think we can improve. Our show notes for today's episode is packed with links to Sasha's book on sleep in early modern England, as well as additional information for where you can explore the museums and resources on sleep in Shakespeare's lifetime. Find all of these links at CassidyCash.com slash episode 220. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP220. Patrons of our show this week can unlock special bonuses related to today's topic, including portraits, woodcuts, and museum artifacts of things like the Great Bed of Ware that we mentioned in our show today, along with examples of nightcaps, bedchambers, and canopy beds that we talked about today. Unlock all of this bonus history content using the orange Patreon button right inside our show notes, or you can sign up to be our patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life for these and other great VIP extras. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.